Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School for National Service and a genocide scholar. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Nick Estes, Assistant Professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico, about his book, Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance, published by Verso in 2019. This is not the first time Nick has been interviewed for New Books Network. Ryan Tate previously interviewed Nick for New Books in the American West. For this interview, however, we will focus primarily on genocide, resistance, and survival. Nick, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have the opportunity to speak with you about your important book, especially in this moment in history. Before we get into it, though, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, the... The, the history behind this particular book came um, not just out of Standing Rock. I think it gets placed in that context, and that's really important. But it also just came from growing up in Chamberlain, South Dakota, you know, in my own homelands, but not having really access to the history of the, the area or the region or the Lakota and Dakota people who live on the river. And this book was really an effort to, you know, provide a history, an accessible history of the area, primarily for, you know, a younger generation of Native scholars, Native students, um, but also a general audience uh, and something that was accessible and readily available. So that was really um, the the impetus behind the book. And I'll say this, that like, it, it also comes out of a, a, a particular kind of tradition in my own family. My two of my grandfathers were authors. Um, they both wrote the first histories of our tribe, the Lord Rosu tribe. And I really think of it as an extenuation of, um, or an extension of what uh, they accomplished as scholars themselves. Very interesting. It's de- definitely a very uh, accessible book. I, um, you know, as a genocide studies scholar, of course, I was really interested in how you discussed um, the genocide of indigenous peoples in North America, as well as their stories of resistance and survival, um, which certainly connects um, you know, the long history to the present day. Um, I wonder if I could ask, you know, would you consider based on what I see on social media from you and, and from your book and, um, and your actions, would you consider yourself a scholar activist? And if so, what, what does that mean to you and, and the work that you do? If I consider myself a scholar activist, then I would say those who are writing anyone who's writing history as a scholar activist because they're automatically participating in some kind of political you know uh, I, I would just say that history is political right and you know for example um, the current debate that's happening right now with monuments and I'm sure we'll get into this later on in the interview it's centered on how we understand history and you can't ignore politics in, in how we understand history so, for example, someone might say they might dismiss my you know, book or my work as um, activist scholarship. 
but they might not dismiss somebody like, you know, Gary Cooper Anderson, who is writing, who's actively denying that genocide existed against indigenous people, right? I would see him him as a, a more activist scholarship uh, scholar than myself, you know, and he's 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 kind of gone head to head with a lot of indigenous studies scholars saying that genocide never happened here on this continent. There was a video of a famous UK scholar recently uh, who said, you know, if if genocide happened, if if genocide if slavery was genocide, then why are there so many Africans in Africa, right? But he's not seen as a, a, a activist historian. But those are those two assumptions that indigenous genocide didn't happen in the Americas, or at least in North America, or that genocide didn't happen in Africa. Those are two highly charged political statements and positions that have implications in how we understand uh, contemporary, you know, politics, uh, especially when it comes to land claims. You know, like uh, the the land claims around the Black Hills, for example are incredibly charged because often the accusation made against Lakota people is that we are, you know, late arrivals. We, we have no like real, you know, longstanding historical relationship with the Black Hills. It's been a common trope uh, among, among uh, Western historians, specifically reading uh, white uh, sources um, very literally and how they understand, you know, Lakota attachments to place or, uh, you know, uh, there are specific relationships to certain place and not understanding like the fluid kind of like relationships that we had, not just with um, the land itself, but with other people who lived on the land. So for example, um, it was told to me by Charmaine Whitefaced, who, who sits on the Black Hills Treaty Council. She herself is a master oral historian and knows many of these histories, um, not from reading books, but from listening to her ancestors um, participate in the, the generational tradition of passing down these histories. But she, she explained it to me this way. She said that when you look out on the plains, you see, um, you know, you tend to see just one grass, right? But if you look really close, closely, you see many species of grass. And in some parts of the plains, you see more dominant species and, you know, but that doesn't preclude the existence of other species of grass. And so, the misunderstanding of this particular region is that Lakota people, you know, basically did what the United States would do later on, which was, you know, essentially, you know, kick, be imperialist and kick all the other tribes out of the, you know, the, the territory and then become the dominant one. I would say that there was multiple factors involved and that you can't reduce it to, um, you know, this, this kind of cultural relativism or moral relativism to say that all societies kind of tend towards expansionism and, an imperialist conquest and Lakota people are no different. That's just a, that's a very, that to me, that's an activist, you know, that's an activist assumption. Uh, it needs to be labeled as such. If, if my work is being labeled as activist, because all I'm doing is I'm just telling the stories that Lakota people have been, you know, telling me um, since I was a, I was a child. Um, that's the history that I've known. And many of the people who are writing these histories about us as being imperialists, they're not Lakota people. They don't know the language. They don't know the oral traditions. You wouldn't write a history on Russia without understanding the Russian language, you know, Russian culture, history, and, you know, their value system. But that's the assumption of many, you know, dominant Western historians is to come in and say, like, they, they can become experts on our people, having oftentimes never visited the place or maybe have visited a handful of times, but don't really know the country and the nation itself. Um, 
So that's what I would say to that <laughs> that accusation of uh, it's not really an accusation. The label of uh, activist scholar. I, I don't call myself an activist scholar, but I don't like also you know just say that like scholarship isn't political or doesn't have a political agenda. Yeah, uh, you know, when I asked the question, I was thinking of uh, of activist scholar or scholar activist in in a more positive light. But I I totally understand uh, you know what you're saying about how. Um, some things that are labeled as um, activist scholarship can be um, devalued or um, you know, trivialized. You know, I think it's similar to some something that I've said before, which is that you know I say this to students sometimes when I introduce them to material they may not normally get introduced to is that it's always labeled or it seems to be labeled political when we introduce you know or uh, certain scholarship is political. But we never look at the status quo scholarship or scholarship that you know reproduces the status right. quo as being political. But there's a political decision made in producing that kind of scholarship as well. Um, but we don't always label it as such. So, um, yeah. Well, if if there is like something that you can take away from the 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 term activist scholarship or activist scholar, it's that there's much more of a how would you say scrutiny. Uh, towards what would be considered activist scholarship, because you have, you know, your peer review, right, uh, in the academic institution itself. But then oftentimes, the work that you use is is often like reviewed by courts or by, you know, sometimes, you know, police or uh, in, it goes into some kind of like, you know, system that's outside of the, the academy to be judged um, by a different set of standards. And so in that sense, activist scholarship or the scho- like the scholarship that I'm doing uh, has to be more rigorous <laughs> or, you know, has to be has a different kind of set of eyes to, um, you know, determine its validity. And so in that sense, like I know I know people who are working on like a mega dam projects in places like Guatemala, where they can't you know, they, they have to they're very mindful of the fact that anything that they do um, is probably going to be interpreted or looked at or scrutinized by the court itself. And so there's always a mind towards that. And so in that sense, it, it raises the bar of, um, you know, scrutiny and, you know, the, the level or the quality of the scholarship that's being produced. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there are gatekeepers, right? Um, So uh, before we get, you know, to, um, off track from, uh, you know, the bigger conversation here, uh, cause I'm sure we could continue to talk about this for, uh, the rest of the time. Um, g- getting back to your, to your book, um, you've already sort of introduced the debate. Um, if, you know, if we want to call it that around, um, the genocide question of indigenous peoples and, you know, throughout your book, you use the term genocide to describe the treatment of indigenous peoples. You also demonstrate how this treatment fits within the genocide convention, the legal definition from uh, the murder of indigenous peoples to forced sterilization, uh, creating conditions unsustainable to life, the forced transfer of children, you know, the boarding schools, um, you know, all these different um, sort of you know, methods of uh, that fall under the genocide convention. You know, for our audience, can you talk for a little bit more anyway about why this is genocide and how those who reject it? do so or how they justified um, rejecting the label of genocide. Sure. So uh, I think it's important to think about the 1977 um, Geneva meeting uh, that was facilitated by um, a lot of indigenous organizations throughout the world uh, at the United Nations where they, they wanted to adopt how they understood um, genocide against indigenous people. 
And it's, it's really important because it becomes a framework on how we view the past. And it's not to say, you know, there's this, there's an accusation, oh, the term genocide was, is a recent invention and you're applying it to the past. And so therefore it doesn't matter. But if you look at a lot of the claims of genocide, um, you know, throughout indigenous history, you, you begin to see a different kind of picture because indigenous people have been saying this, um, or have been making this accusation for quite some time. I can think of, you know, Zinkala Shah, who, whose birth name was, um, Gertrude Bonham, but she, you know, she became a very prominent scholar and Native American rights activist in the early 20th century and was very influential in an organization called the Society of American Indians, which was, you know, billed as the first kind of pan-Indigenous North American society. But she has a piece that was unpublished called The Black Hills the Black Hills Claim, where she details these, the mass starvation of Lakota and Dakota people to get them to sign um, the, the, the Black Hills Agreement um, and how they were coerced in, you know, in, 18, uh, or in 1876 and 1877 to make these concessions to the United States government, how the mass slaughter of the buffalo um, had been kind of facilitated, and then later on how uh, children, you know, were taken from their families and adopted out, or and and removed, you know, to oftentimes to off reservation boarding schools such as Carlisle in 1879. And so these accusations have existed for quite some time. And she wrote that piece, I believe, in 1921, and it was never published. So just for the Ocheti Shalkoni, that kind of exists in our consciousness and, and claims that were made, you know, against against the United States. And so when we talk about the genocide convention, it just really spells out things that we have already experienced and have already known uh, in our own history. Um, And the reason why it's genocide, and I think this is, this is something that, you know, like if you just look at my, some of my Twitter posts or even some of the Twitter posts online, when you do start talking about genocide in a more public venue, People, you know, will say, well, oh, well, you know, you still live here, you know, um, how is this genocide if we, you know, if we, if you're not all dead and it, it almost seems like genocide has to be the zero sum game, right? You either, you either exist or you don't exist, right? Uh, and genocide happens if you don't exist or if it's, if it's destroyed like a large part of your population. Um, and the, the common misconception, I guess, in North America is that genocide is primarily the result of the act of killing, like kind of this this idea that there was this warfare, uh, this war of attrition, you know, where, you know, indigenous people were being killed in mass uh, in these large scale massacres and large scale massacres did happen, um, but they weren't the primary mode of killing. And I think that's what we, we actually have to talk about, like how um, indigenous people died. And, you know, now is the perfect time to talk about how we understand communicable diseases and why, certain populations or certain people or demographics have um, higher, you know, what they call, you know, to use medical terminology, higher uh, comorbidities or, you know, things that are called uh, pre-existing conditions, right? And so that makes them more susceptible in this kind of medical terminology to to not just uh, rates of infection of things like coronavirus, but also um, dying from coronavirus. So in this state, in New Mexico, where I'm calling you from, I believe the death rate 
or the deaths, Native Americans account for around 50 to 52 percent of coronavirus deaths in the state, yet only make up about five or excuse me, they make up 11 percent of the population. So that's a five times, you know, that's five times higher than their their population. And why is that? The kind of traditional view, uh, you know, like views that have been popularized by people such as Jared Diamond, um, Richard White, even um, Colin Calloway, is that there was a kind of immune deficiency uh, amongst a bio- There's a biological reason why so many indigenous people died of communicable diseases. And this gets into the virgin soil, you know, or the virgin, yeah, the virgin soil thesis about um, disease that indigenous people just had no natural immunity to these diseases that had developed uh, in Europe and Europeans had more kind of like uh, fortitude biologically, right? That's the story we're told. And it's a very convenient narrative because it kind of lets, you know, these colonizers, these colonizing nations off the hook and, this isn't something I really get into into the book um, so much. Um, I get into it a little bit around in the in the chapters on the fur trade, because that was when disease was most devastating, not just for Lakota and Dakota people, but for the Missouri uh, River indigenous nations in general, um, and the kind of heightened conditions of war uh, and warfare around the river trade had created you know conditions where people weren't getting enough food. Um, and therefore we're becoming more susceptible specifically to diseases such as smallpox. And so if we understand the kind of pre-existing conditions as being created by invasion and colonialism with the intent to wipe out these, um, these uh, indigenous nations, then it raises the question that disease is, you know, we is, is a, is a, is a tool of genocide. And it's not this kind of like, there, you know, the kind of other extreme version of this argument is that like, well, it was, you know, disease was purposely spread amongst indigenous people. And that itself is also kind of a myth, even though it did happen in, in certain um, circumstances, it wasn't how most indigenous people contracted um, the, these viruses and these diseases, right? Um, they often contact uh, contracted it through trade, but it was made more deadly because of the conditions of war. And so when you're, when your food source is being taken away from you, when you're being confined to a certain, uh, you know, geography and you're not allowed to leave and you don't, you know, you don't, you you have the quote unquote preexisting conditions of malnutrition, for example, um, it, it's going to cause higher rates of death. And so it changes how we understand genocide in the sense that genocide, first of all, you know, requires intent. And I guess the definition would be like, you know, the conspiracy uh, to commit genocide, I think is the actual language or the incitement to commit genocide or an attempt, right? Or sometimes even the complicity. And those those things are important because int- it's about intent. It's about, it's not about outcome, it's about intent, right? And so the outcome may not have been the mass annihilation of, of indigenous people. Uh, and it, it was, if you, for the most part, especially if you track disease, I think around they they attribute the the more kind of um, accurate numbers attribute around seventy percent of the demographic uh, decline as attributable to disease itself, which is which is huge if you think about it. And then you know warfare and other other factors factor into that as well. Um, but it was around in some in some instances around a ninety percent de- pop, uh, population decline, right? Um, so genocide actually 
raises some th- some frameworks that we can look at um, history with, right? So you know, you you name them in the question, right? Um, but I'll just I'll just name them for people who want to listen or who are listening. You know, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. That's the key language, right? Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And this is important because it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to include all of those things, right? It can include one or or, uh, several of those things. Uh, And that's why it's, it's an important tool to uh, begin to study indigenous history specifically. Of course, Nick, it's also, that is the legal definition, which is, which is a political definition which excludes, other than the transfer of um, children, excludes all other elements of cultural um, cultural right. genocide, if we want to refer to that just to differentiate here for our purposes, which was included in the earlier drafts and, of course, is included in Raphael Lemkin's conception of genocide. Um, and there were so many things, you know, historically and ongoing um, that, you know, essentially seek to erase the indigenous identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good question, um, and you might you and I might have different views on this, and you you yourself are a, an expert on this, and so I would defer to you. But I will say, you know, I will say that we actually have to think about what culture means, right? In some ways, when we talk about culture for Native people, it takes on a different connotation than if we talk about culture from you know other folks. Culture arises from how, you know, one reproduces themselves, both biologically, uh, as well as socially. And, you know, that social reproduction is incredibly important, because it includes, you know, our entire culture, as like, you know, Plains people was a buffalo culture, you know, it was it was to that specific region. And so our culture was tied to, you know, to use a Marxist framework, tied to a mode of production. And when you eliminate that economic and social mode of production, it's also part of eliminating that culture as well. And so culture isn't just this kind of immaterial thing. It's tied to a material basis, right, um, of food, uh, of life ways, right? Um, so I, I would say that, like, you you have to include culture and, and, like, language. You know, language is tied, you know, that language, our language evolved from our relationship to a specific place and to specific beings on that place, not just human beings, but other other than human beings as well, including the buffalo uh, and the animal and plant nations that live there. So yeah, culture should be included in that definition. Thank you. Yeah, I, I know there's a something I wanted to get to later. Uh, so I'll just add to it, um, see if there's anything else you want to say about this. Um, you know, as you, know, you indicated there, um, sometimes we think about genocide as, um, you know, a, a specific um there's like specific methods that can be separated from one another. Um, but for indigenous peoples, you know, say physical, biological, and cultural survival um, are often interconnected, if not always interconnected. So, um, and you mentioned the extermination of Buffalo and how, you know, that impacted indigenous peoples. Could you talk a little bit more how genocide might be seen as a sort of a holistic act that uh, attacks indigenous peoples from you know, various directions? Right. So I think the, the most common, um, especially amongst indigenous people and indigenous history historians is to think about the, the effect of the boarding schools, right? So we can look at the, the very 
basic definition of genocide, and which is forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And child removal is part of boarding schools, right? The legacies of child, child removal began um, primarily, I guess, or at least predominantly um, with the off-reservation boarding school system that was created by Colonel Pratt. And his you know, famous phrase was kill the Indian, save the man. And we can understand that like, it's not just those schools didn't just intend like, you know, that there were a lot of children who died there. Um, I think that's important to point out. A lot of people don't realize this, but those schools were never meant for education. The half the class that went there and those were the first class that went there was actually Lakota people, um, themselves primarily from, um, uh, spotted tail and red clouds bands, um, and the Pine Ridge agency and the Rosebud, um, agency. And they were taken, you know, to basically force those leaders, um, to sign over more land concessions, right. And to adopt, um, you know, allotment later on, um, after, after, um, you know, the, the Dawes allotment act was passed. And so they were using these children as, as hostage and, you know, that's the kind of like the, like the, the kind of definition of genocide in that sense. And, you know, it's trying to achieve political ends by, um, getting lands, land sessions out of Lakota people and these two defiant, uh, more kind of defiant, uh, bands of, of the Lakotas. However, the other aspect of it and the aspect that you're talking about this holistic, um, this holistic, uh, idea of genocide is, you know, affecting the biological cultural, um, the, when they took those children there, they shaved their heads, right? Um, they basically attempted to strip them of their indigenous identity. And while many did die um, because of the the harsh conditions of these boarding schools, um, and if we can just look at Carlisle, half the first half of the class, the first incoming class, died at Carlisle, right? Um, or they they died, you know, um, on these outing programs where they would basically send children out to work for white families for free. Um, so the first class of, you know, Carlisle never, most of them didn't even graduate. I don't even know what the graduation rate was, but I haven't found that, um, you know, besides like Luther Standing Bear, who writes about this particular era, uh, I haven't found very many instances um, of that first class graduating, let alone surviving. Right. Um, but they were stripped of their identity. They were, you know, their hair was cut. Uh, and for Lakota people to cut one's hair actually means to mourn a, a death. And in Luther Standing Bear's um, autobiography of this particular era, um, he was, you know, he was that first, he was part of that first generation. He, you know, he basically like mourned the death of himself um, and the loss of his Lakota identity, or at least he didn't lose his identity. The identity itself was being taken from him. And he had to, you know, after his hair was cut, he had to point, you know, uh, a pointer on a chalkboard to an arbitrary you know, English name. And that's how we got Luther. Right. Um, and he talks about this in his book, um, my people, the Stu the Sioux, and also the land of the spotted Eagle, um, which I recommend people go and read because it's often not thought of as, you know, something that's detailing, um, genocide. And in fact it is, you know, he, you know, he does everything he's supposed to do. He goes back to the reservation. He, be, you know, he gets his allotment, he tries to farm, um, but nothing really works out because, and at the end, you know, towards the end of his life, he becomes very critical of this whole, you know, this whole educational process. And he sees it as basically trying to turn 
indigenous people into into white people. Uh, it's a form of genocide. He doesn't use that language because that language didn't really exist at the time. Um, but that's that's his you know that's his assessment. That's his conclusion. And this was in the 1930s when he was you know when he was writing his um, his autobiographies. And so when we talk about you know the the cultural aspect of genocide. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate sometimes to, to call it cultural genocide because I would say that it, it fits in with a broader framework of genocide. It's an aspect. I don't know if it's if, and you know, again, you and I may may disagree on this, uh, disagree on this, but you know, like that's that's how I see it. I see it as is kind of part and parcel to a larger process because while he was being stripped of his identity, you know, uh, many of those children were returning home back to their families. And they had no means of communicating. They couldn't even speak with their parents, right? Because they didn't, they no longer spoke the same language. And it broke it, you know, it broke those bonds of kinship, which were at the heart of, you know, um, all of our tribal societies. And we, when we talk about the, the repercussions of this, we can fast forward to 1969, when at that particular moment in time, one out of every three Native American children in the United States had been adopted out to a white family, right? Again, breaking that kinship tie because those kin that kinship tie is bound to the land itself, right? When you don't have that connection to your own family, you don't have that connection to your to the land base itself, right? And then it makes it easier for that land to become a commodity. And I'm kind of going beyond the uh, the scope of my <laughs> book here, but. I did write a piece recently um, based on an interview I had conducted with one of my grandfathers, Frank Estes. And, you know, I, I talk about his work in the book itself, but it was like a footnote that became a kind of separate article. But he talked about, you know, he, he was a trained sociologist who went to South Dakota State University. And he was very interested in the idea of mobility and movement and how, um, Lakota people, and primarily the lower rural, the Kulichasha Oyate, the tribe that I belong to, were people of movement, and that we've always been dynamic in that sense. And it was the reservation, you know, system actually introduced a foreign system to us of, of being like, you know, sed sedentary, and being, you know, confined to a reservation, and how, you know, foreign that was to us as indigenous people, and how it also changed how we viewed our relationships with each other as, you know, as family. And he said this thing to me and I thought, it, you know, at the time I was like, oh, wow, he's trying, he's like saying, he's imparting some like Lakota wisdom on me. But he said, you know, we're, 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 we are related through the land. And I was like, wow, that's really profound. And he said, no, we're actually, we can actually trace our relations through the land because of the Dawes Allotment Act and the parceling of land and the airship process that happened, right? So he pulled out a big stack of papers from the Department of Interior and showed me all the fractionated interests in um, one parcel of land uh, in in Wambli, uh, South Dakota, on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, where we have family. And I had no idea that we had actually had family there. And he, you know, his his estimation was, you know, because he's a sociologist and he meant he was reading like Durkheim and all these other. Um, so, uh, sociologists and he said you know our the world of like indigenous relations has been replaced by a world of paper and have has been abstracted and i would say that that is an outcome of you know this cultural genocide that we have that before our relationships like he even talked about how a lot of the people we have uh that we knew as relatives and i grew up knowing as relatives have no biological relationship to us whatsoever we can't trace a common ancestor 
but they were adopted into our family because that was the way that kinship structures worked. It, you know, it didn't, it wasn't based on blood. It wasn't based on blood quantum and how it created. And even like, you know, even this original allotment had so many different heirs. And he's, he said, you know, because the, the, the original family, you know, was polygamous. It was and and, you know, that word I don't think is really applicable um, to our societies um, because we never really had the kind of formal heteronuclear Christian, you know, structure of a, of a family and marriage. Or the institution of marriage that was premised on property, but this man, for lack of you know a better term, had um, three wives, and you know like one of our ancestors was one of those wives. Um, so all of that was kind of like kept on that piece of paper, that allotment paper that tracked these heirs and these fractionated interests. Um, but I thought it was a very poetic way of of understanding that the world of indigenous relations they attempted to replace them with the world of paper to abstract them, right? Whether, you know, whether it was through um, the, the form of writing and how writing was introduced to us. He talked about my grandmother, Cornelia Shawala, who's also talked about in the book and how she learned English and how she came to learn uh, to read and write. And it was through boarding school, right? And my grandfather, my great grandfather, Ruben Estes, who I also talk about in the book, you know, he was, he was bilingual. He was a translator. He could speak Lakota and, English very fluently. They called him Ieska, um, which means to translate. And now it's, you know, it's kind of a derogatory term. It means a uh, mixed blood, which isn't quite accurate because Ieska means to speak and Ska means white to speak white. Um, but anyways, he, he couldn't read and write, but my grandmother, uh, my great grandmother, Cornelia Shawala, where we get our clan name from, um, could read and write. And so she was writing all of these powerful congressmen, these lawyers, because my grandfather Reuben was the chairman, the first chairman of the tribe at the time. But in, I would just think of like, you know, him sitting there in his rocking chair in his tar paper house on the Missouri River, like listening to, you know, my grandmother read the news, read these letters from these, you know, these high powered officials, these congressmen, uh, even sometimes a president um, or the, 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 or the, um, the, the commissioner of Indian affairs, um, and then she would write out the letters, you know, to these guys, and they probably had no idea that this woman was the one who was actually communicating with them. So um, that's the world of paper, you know. That's that's a really long answer to your question, um, but I think it's more it can be detailed more through our stories as as Lakota and Dakota people than it can be like in a in a kind of academic sense that way. Absolutely, yeah. I you know I I, I don't know that we disagree that much i think it's really another part of which would be a whole other conversation yeah. about genocide studies and how a lot of the definitions still being used in genocide studies basically require that substantial numbers of people be killed through direct physical violence um and so then i think some of us feel like we have to refer to quote-unquote cultural genocide to draw mm-hmm. attention to these other acts that constitute genocide but then, of course, when we refer to cultural genocide, then we're sort of saying that it is something different rather than a part of genocide, um, which gets into, you know, complicated things around um, around genocide studies scholarship. Um, you know, I wanted to go back a little bit to, um, you know, the, the debate about genocide. Um, I mean, you talk a little bit about founding myths in your book. And so I wanted to, you know, maybe a couple questions that relate to um, the debate, but taking, uh, taking it a step forward to the question of denial. Um, 
you know, there's been movements against denial of genocides, including uh, legislation that criminalizes denial of genocide. Um, some of the ones that I can think of uh, include, you know, the Armenian genocide, uh, the Jewish Holocaust, and uh, the Tutsi genocide in Rwanda. Um, why don't, I, I guess, for me personally, not personally on a, a personal level, but I guess maybe on a, a interest of mine is we don't treat the, our lack of recognition, if you will, um, of some other genocides, including indigenous genocides, as denial. And 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 in my mind, fail to recognize the indigenous people, genocide indigenous peoples, can be seen as a form of denial. And I, I was wondering, you know, maybe especially in the North American context, how founding myths maybe contribute to why it's not seen as denying genocide uh, and any thoughts you have on, on any of that. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to that. I mean, you can just look at how the ideas of the, you know, like if you go back to the pilgrims, they saw the diseases and the, you know, that were exacerbated by the conditions of war um, that were introduced to indigenous people in that, in those areas in new England specifically, and what became new England um, were seen as divine pro- or divine intervention, right. To basically clear the land. And so the, the kind of founding ideology is, is this idea that this land, you know, belongs to this new nation that's being created, you know, John Winthrop's you know, city on a hill, the rest of the world will look uh, and gaze upon, you know, the city that's, you know, this, that has this exceptional, unique history. And so, gen- like, the denial of indigenous genocide is is tied to these kind of, you know, founding myths before even the United States came into existence as a nation, right? Because the U.S. later on, you know, draws from these the, the pilgrim mythology specifically as something that's foundational to its its nationhood and its, uh, in particular, it's um, uh, the exceptionalism of this particular state, and you know, that gets into this, these ideas of like, you know, um, biological inferiority, you know, the, the kind of religious or spiritual or social cultural inferiority of indigenous people being unable to cope with the advanced kind of technology that was introduced. Um, all of these things, you know, it makes for a convenient story to just say that because of these natural conditions, because of social evolution, because of biological evolution, indigenous people, you know, just couldn't, they weren't strong enough to fight back. Um, so they, they kind of withered away and, and died off, you know, and those are, those are what, you know, Michael Wilcox, um, a, uh, a native American archeologist calls terminal narratives. Right. Um, and terminal narratives has like multiple definitions. One of them is just the, the academic obsession with the die off narratives. Right. Um, if you look at like some of the language that's used by popular academics, Western historians just to, you know, uh, and it's not just like Colin Calloway and Richard White who say this, a lot of people repeat these narratives, but they're kind of the two um, most turned to Western historians or indigenous historians. Um, so it's worth pointing them out because people might be familiar with them, but both of them on multiple occasions say that indigenous people were quote unquote doomed to die. Right. And that has to do primarily with the disease narratives. Um, and so the founding myths of this country are kind of, you know, they've evolved over time, right? So uh, it, with the pilgrims, it was divine intervention. You know, God cleared this land um, for his His chosen people, right? And then later on, it became, you know, they became more, quote unquote, scientific explanations for why the land was cleared. 
And you can't really, you can't really penetrate either of those arguments with the question of genocide, right? Because it doesn't fit the, it doesn't fit the, the narrative. It doesn't fit, um, you know, the idea that like, if people are just naturally inferior and they die off, that's not genocide. That's just, that's just, that's just nature, right? That's just like this mechanical, this idea of a mechanical nature, right? That it just nature is taking its course. Um, so it's hard, it's hard to penetrate either one of those myths. And the thing that, I have learned the most about, um, about this is actually from museum studies. Um, everyone should go read decolonizing museums by Amy Lone Tree, uh, and just having conversations with her about how genocide is erased. Indigenous genocide specifically is erased in us museums, but also even how like indigenous museums tend to obfuscate, um, genocide. There are more museums to the, the Shoah, the European Shoah than there are to the, the indigenous uh, genocide in North America. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, why is that? Why it's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't memorialize and recognize the Shoah and learn from that, that those atrocities. We absolutely should. But why is it that the Shoah becomes, you know, what the, the genocide that the United States is comfortable remembering, but not the indigenous genocide, right? And I think we, you know, in her, in several of her books, um, or in several of her articles and books, she kind of details like the, the National Museum of the American Indians and even how that became controversial. Like it, it's on the, you know, it's on the National Mall. It's part of those, the series of uh, museums and, you know, not too, I mean, it's not like, it's not really close, but it's, it's nearby. Like I remember when I, whenever I go to Washington, DC, I, I love going to all the museums. I went to the African-American history museum, which is amazing. They have a whole series on, you know, the history of slavery and uh, lynching. And you walk out of that, those exhibits and you're like, wow, this is the history. These are the modern legacies, right? You go to the Holocaust museum and there's, you know, you don't have a doubt in your mind of the pure horror, right. And the legacy of, of the Shoah. Right. Um, but then you walk into the, the museum of uh, the national um, museum of American Indians. And I, ha I haven't been recently. Um, I think it was, I went several years ago, but they used to have this exhibit that kind of tried to explain the conquest of the, the Americas from an indigenous perspective. And I walked in there and I was like, it was just, it, it didn't make any sense. There was no narrative. There wasn't no, there wasn't a coherent narrative. I, I walked out and I didn't feel as if like, like even as an indigenous person that it like really spoke to like, you know, indigenous, you know, like there was an indigenous genocide and it doesn't mean that you have to go to those, those museums and just have like that kind of sinking feeling but at least they should talk about it and they should like explain to the public. It's their duty to explain to the public. And I thought, I thought to myself, I was like, why is that? Like, why is it, why is, well, why can't we have the recognition of, you know, this kind of genocide? And I think it's, it's difficult. Like, like even with indigenous controlled museums, it's difficult to have that conversation because the broader public isn't, you know, ready to have that conversation. I mean, I, I wouldn't say like the broader public, I think if most people knew and learned about indigenous genocide, we would have a, a definite cultural and political shift in this country. But I think there's, um, there's, you know, there's a, there's a currency um, to deny genocide uh, in, in this country because indigenous genocide is directly tied to land, right? That's why we, we talk about settler colonialism and the elimination of the native Um because when we begin to talk about indigenous genocide and possible, um, 
you know, restoration or justice, it, it broaches the question of, of land. Like how did the, how was this land acquired? How did, you know, how did 90, you know, 5% of privately owned land in the United States fall into the hand of white families, right? How did one in four of, you know, every white American adult white American alive today benefit directly from the 1862 Homestead Act? How did, you know, the Morale Act in which, you know, was passed in 1862 um, under Abraham Lincoln, how this act facilitated the, you know, the wealth of uh, land grant universities in this country that actually create that categorically excluded indigenous peoples and African Americans at the time. Um, how did like, how did the modern university in the United States get created to create, you know, some of the most advanced uh, academic and educational systems in the world? It happened at the expense of indigenous people, right? And so it raises these moral questions about how the land was taken and, and and for what purposes it was taken, right? And so it's difficult to have that conversation. Even, you know, in even now it's like with the the destruction of monuments and the taking down of monuments, people are suggesting, well, why don't we just put up, you know, why don't we just put up a, a memorial for like native people alongside of, you know, these monuments? And I was, you know, and when people ask me that question, I'm like, well, that that already exists. They're like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, it's like you have Crazy Horse Memorial uh, Monument uh, in the Black Hills just down the road from Mount Rushmore. And I said, but the the conditions still remain the same is that both of those memorials, both of those monuments exist on stolen Lakota land, right? In the heart of our, in the heart of our, um, you know, cosmological and spiritual universe. It doesn't actually shift and it doesn't actually change the material conditions. And that's when, you know, that's what I think like the, the larger question of indigenous genocide really brings about is it actually brings in, it calls into question the very existence of the United States and it's in its founding myth, myths as well. Yeah. Which is uh, a much uh, deeper and significant discussion than I think yeah. most <laughs> want to have. <laughs> yeah. because, of yeah. the, uh, because the only conclusion you can come to, I mean, the, the, obviously the fairest, Thing would be well. I mean, a couple of things. Um, I mean, land could be returned, um, but that's right. not even um, open for any discussion at all. At least uh, in, in a legal sense. Um, it also makes us think about our, our family's entire history. You know, me as a um, someone with a European ancestry. Um, it uh, there, there was another thing I was, <laughs> was going to say there, but I, I lost track for a moment. Um, I, I guess maybe I. I want to ask you a little bit about the the toppling of of statues and symbols of you know our, our racist and violent history um, in this country. Um, I mean, is it is it more than symbolic? Um, is there is there something happening there besides just um, removing these symbols? Um, but also, are there are there any statues? You know, I, I talked with uh, Jeffrey Osler about his book, um, and you know, he talks about uh, you know Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, of course, a prominent um, mon- monument in, in the D.C. area. Um, are these worthy of being torn down also or replaced? And, or, and I guess maybe does it does it matter? Yeah, I think, you know, those are important questions. I'm not like it's like a question of like for or against, you know, like tearing down monuments. I don't. The question for me is that like right now we have 
armed guards who are sitting around these monuments, protecting them 24 seven, right? That to me says a lot about the moral, political, and, you know, social and cultural investments in these, in this, in these kinds of narratives, the, you know, to get really simple, you know, colonization is about three things. It's about God, gold, and glory. And the, you know, they brought the God, you know, there's a joke. Um, and it, I found out this is a joke in, in, um, in South Africa as well. Some of my South African friends shared it with me, but they said, you know, when white people came or when Europeans came, they brought the Bible and we had all the land. And now, now we have the Bible and they have all the land, right? And the gold, there's the kind of economic, you know, side of, of colonization. It doesn't just happen because they hate our culture and our spirituality. There's economic, you know, there's an economic base to it, right? Um, and if you even look at the, the Black Hills, you know, the reason why the Black Hills were taken from us is because of its rich uh, gold veins. And then there's the glory part, right? And this is the soft underbelly of it all, I believe, is that because this is why this is what's evoking the most you know violent confrontations like we can stop the economic you know flow of capital you know with blo by block blockading pipelines and you know all across the country we can shut down you know rail lines in north and in, in canada and all these things and raise all this attention we can you know we can stop the flow of capital and you know it, people start paying attention and you know there's there is of course um state backlash and everything's like that and everything like that but what has what has you know, um, I guess evoked the most violent backlash is the glory part. The question of these monuments, like here in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was a, you know, there was an Oñate monument, Don de Oñate, he was a Spanish conquistador. Um, he himself had indigenous, an indigenous mother um, that was, you know, he was a product of rape. Um, but he, you know, was a very violent individual. He was a mutilator. He was a genocider and he himself was a rapist. And, you know, did awful things to the Pueblo people in this, in this region. And out of all of the things that I've, I've seen in this city around, you know, police violence, specifically against indigenous people, uh, border town violence, it was the statue, the, the taking down of the statue that actually resulted in the shooting of somebody like a, a white vigilante shooting into a crowd of people and shooting one individual, another you know, another white person, but um, who was defending this crowd of people shot him three times in the back. And to me, that says something, you know, um, that this is the, that this is the soft underbelly and the, the weakest foundation of this kind of settler narrative. It's not just these statues, it's the glory part, right? They want to make, there's such a deep moral, political, and, you know, um, emotional investment in these kinds of things that people are willing to kill other people to keep them up. Right. And that to me, you know, is, is really at the heart of all of this in the statues. Um, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to like advocate for the tearing down of statues. People have very good reasons for taking down these statues and it's incumbent upon us as people who are social commenters as, as historians to actually listen to what they're saying, because the histories that they're, they're telling are very complicated, right? There's, you know, why take down Grant? if you listen to the people who took down the grant statue, or at least the, the people in the community who took down the grant, the grant statue, they talk about Ulysses S grant as an Indian killer, right. Um, and a slave owner. And he wasn't invested in abolition and they're telling the story, you know, and, and you actually have to listen to what people have to say. Right. And I think that's, 
that's that's the outcome of all of this and it, it can't be simplified by one kind of historical moment in time such as the civil war as defining the morality of this country because even the civil war as we understand it in popular you know in kind of popular history or the popular understanding of the civil war is that yes the civil war was to fought was fought to end slavery but only became it only became a war for slavery when african people themselves began to fight for their freedom right it wasn't the union never entered that war with the with the, the objective of of freeing enslaved african people right and so that's that's also a you know convenient elision and also the the fact that the the civil war was used as an opportunity by the union army to shore up its western frontier by committing you know horrific acts of violence against indigenous people and this the toppling of these statues has created a national conversation and an international conversation, you know, because they're they're doing it in London and they're doing it in Belgium, you know, all over, all over where these these uh, statues exist. Um, but it's created this conversation to actually begin to investigate history and to really, um, you know, go at the root of these founding myths and why why there is so much, you know invested in sustaining these statues themselves. And so I think the, the, the statue question is important and we have, you know, we have to understand that like it, the, the Confederate statues were erected during, you know, Jim Crow as a part of like a, a broader campaign of racial terror to, to remind black people, you know, that the South will rise again. Right. Um, and these statues to Columbus, you know, Columbus never even stepped foot on what became the United States. I don't understand the I don't understand the obsession with Columbus, right? And there was a this is a kind of a funny aside, but I saw Columbus, Ohio removed. Um, you know, this kind of gets to the absurdity of it all, but Columbus, Ohio removed its Columbus statue, but kept the name Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> which I thought was really funny because I was like, that's um, too far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's I, I do think that the the question of these monuments is important, and it does talk. It does talk about um, the his, you know, it's it's an opportunity for historians to weigh in and to to really evaluate. But also, it's a it's a it's an opportunity for people, everyday people, to democratically participate in in the the creation, the telling of their own history, and that you know that should be embraced. Um, only you know, only people who don't understand history or have some kind of psychological or moral investment in the dispossession of indigenous people and African American people. Um, are invested in these kinds of things. And, you know, it's, it's revealing the deep fissures in, in this that have always existed in, in this country. And, you know, there's reasons why um, I think things have come to a head as we sit here today. Um, you know, a lot obviously tying to Trump administration policies, but yeah. in your book, you also write about the Obama administration. And, you know, I was wondering, um, you know, obviously there's been Republicans in office, there's been Democrats in office, uh, and the threat to indigenous peoples continues. So I mean, is this threat a, a I guess, um, non-political or is it is it bipartisan one? Uh, you also, of course, talked about uh, capitalism and, of course, both parties generally are advocates um, and, um, you know, uh, push you know, or hold up capitalism as our economic model. Uh, so I don't know, is this is this more than just Trump? Is this uh, you know something that's ingrained in American uh, political and you know societal culture? 
The primary organizing principle of a settler colonial society is the elimination of the native, right? And indigenous scholars have been really good at elaborating on the native, not just as like some kind of, you know, disembodied like individual or whatever. It's not just a body. Like I don't, I don't like the term when people say, Oh, native bodies or black bodies. These are, these are persons, but more importantly, indigenous uh, people have always represented a different political order. Right. And so the, if the organizing principle of settler society, whether it's Democrat or Republican is the elimination of indigenous people, it throws, it puts out a different question, right. That we have to confront as, as historians. And it means that indigenous, you know, left out of this question is like the idea of indigenous governance. And we can see, you know, as, um, as the primarily first nations people have really brought to our attention, the, massive amount of resource extraction that Canada participates in, whether it's in the Alberta Qatar sands or, you know, the mining uh, in, in the Western part of the country or the dam building, those are tied to extreme forms of gendered violence against in primarily indigenous women. And it's not just because indigenous women, you know, are, are obstacles to capitalist accumulation, which they are, but it's because indigenous women and primarily non-men represent an alternative political order. When Europeans first came, whether it was the British, the French, or the Spanish, and then later the, the American, Euro-Americans, um, they, when they entreated us and entered into trade relations, they refused to recognize the leadership of indigenous women, even though many indigenous societies were you know, matriarchal, um, or didn't have the kind of antagon, the gendered antagonisms that were very dominant in, you know, heteropatriarchal, um, Western or European societies. And so immediately their governance systems were targeted, um, not for, not, not initially, they were just ignored and erased, right. To, to basically hold up indigenous men as the, as, as leaders, and you can see this going on, you know, throughout history from the fur trade, right? It was, you know, fur traders weren't dealing with indigenous women as, as the brokers, right, um, of the fur trade. It was primarily indigenous men. And it created antagonisms within indigenous society. They wouldn't allow indigenous women to, uh, they, meaning these um, settler nations, wouldn't allow indigenous women to sign treaties. Uh, but there's a good there's a good history of um, Blackhawk. Um, his autobiography he talks about this when they sent military people into negotiate a treaty with the Second Fox uh, folks. He you know he said, well, we don't control the land. It's you know indigenous are it's it's the women's societies who you know are the agricultural you know they keep, they keep the corn, they keep the fields, all these things. You have to talk to them. And the general, the U.S. generals or the U.S. officers were so upset that they they would send their women to talk with these generals. They just walked out of the treaty meeting because they refused to recognize indigenous women or uh, indigenous non-men's authority. And so when we talk about settler society in this, in this particular moment in time and the rise of a rise of consciousness around murdered and missing indigenous women, it's tied to this longer history of gendered violence. And that's happened under you know, it doesn't matter who's in power, right? Like the Haudenosaunee Confederacy calls every sitting president town destroyer since Washington, right? 
And so there's that kind of antagonistic relationship. And when we look at somebody like Obama, Obama was, you know, responsible for the the policy of energy, American energy independence, right? We will pursue all avenues of green technologies or sustainable technologies such as wind and solar a, 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 alongside of developing, you know, the, the national uh, energy infrastructures around oil and gas uh, and the fossil fuel economy. And under Obama's administration, I believe domestic oil production increased by 80%, right? In, uh, and in Cushing, Oklahoma, he gave uh, a maybe understudied speech where he talked about how uh, more pipeline had been weighed, weighed under his administration than any previous one. Exactly, right? And so he, he I wouldn't say that he was like, directly responsible but he he certainly didn't stand in the way of what we now call the fracking revolution right and it happened about the same time as the financial crisis or the great recession and it was seen as like one of the you know the primary kind of driving economic forces that pulled the u.s economy out of the gutter um following that and so it was part of the recovery process right investing in domestic oil production in the fossil fuel economy. So under Trump, you know, and this in the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, it's specific, it's it's important to like recognize um the limits of, you know, uh, Obama's policy. So yeah, he he approved like three quarters of the the legs of the Keystone XL pipeline. And that I think he was that was actually at one of the pipeline the the ceremonies for that pipeline in Cushing, Oklahoma. Um, but he dis he he wouldn't allow the crossing of the Keystone XL pipeline on the international border because it you know fell outside of his his domestic energy policy right. So the Dakota Access pipeline that led to the Standing Rock uprising was you know a domestic pipeline that was taking oil from the Bakken uh, oil region and you know transporting it down to the Gulf of Mexico as part of this this kind of longer infrastructure, and so it, it, he couldn't. You know, like we wish that he would have done more, but he he didn't, and and partially it's because it fell fell outside of his own. I mean, it was within line of his own policy, um, his domestic energy policy, and tr- and Trump comes along and you know um, advances or expands Obama's uh, energy, American energy independence to talk about American energy dominance, right? Because under Obama, Obama really laid the foundation for the U S becoming an exporter, right. Of, of, uh, oil. Um, and Trump, you know, is now like using that or was using it. And it's not so much the case now, but was using that as like a, you know, a big stick to basically, um, beat the rest of the world into submission because the U S was now kind of the, at, on top of the oil game for the first time in its history, at least since like the 1960s, right. It became an exporter nation and it is now the number one exporter in the world. I don't know what that number is now. It might, it might be different. I, I, I don't really know uh, because of the, the fall in oil prices. Right. And so he approved, he did what Obama refused to do and he approved, he fast tracked the approval of the Keystone XL pipeline, um, which ironically took, you know, four years for the Keystone XL pipeline to actually begin um, constructing its Northern leg. And they're, they're currently doing it right now. There's um, there's not a, there's not a clear timeline, you know, of when that will happen, but you know, it's important to remember that Obama had appointed 
like key native officials, right? The sister of the Standing Rock uh, Sioux tribe, the chairman, um, Chairman Dave Archambault, his sister, uh, Jody, um, was actually in the Obama administration, not during the Standing Rock uprising, but before. So Obama, there's no way that Obama didn't know about the Dakota Access Pipeline because the Standing Rock Sioux tribe had been raising awareness around the, the pipeline itself since at least 2013. And there's no way that the tribe didn't have a direct communication with Obama because he, you know, came to the flag day ceremony, the flag day powwow and, and cannonball, right. Which is at the heart of the standing rock resistance or the, the, the camps that were created in 2014 and met with um, Dave Archambault, the chairman at the time, as well as, uh, many of the children who went on, many of the youth, uh, the Standing Rock youth that went on to, you know, be brutalized by police uh, forces in, in opposing the contamination of their water supply, the Missouri River. So that happened under Obama, right? Uh, it's not to say like, it's not to say, I don't, I don't want to, I don't like the facile comparisons of who's worse, um, but it, they're operating under the same, the same kind of structural framework of settler colonialism. There's a diminishment of, of sovereignty. The only difference between Obama and Trump is that Obama, you know, takes took a track of that's very similar to maybe the Trudeau government in recognizing indigenous cultural rights, but not doing anything about really recognizing like sovereignty and territorial integrity of indigenous people or land itself. Right. And that becomes the politics of recognition, whereas Trump doesn't isn't interested in any of that. He's not interested in recognizing indigenous people, their cultural rights. Um, he's, he's kind of more belligerent and outwardly racist, you know, by, you know, saying slurs such as, you know, calling Elizabeth Warren, um, Pocahontas, who, you know, she was a, a child, uh, victim of sex trafficking, right. Which is not funny to us as indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Um, but she herself is, you know, part of that kind of gendered violence of, of, a myth-making right with john smith like as if a, a child has any consent to marry a, a white man that's like more than twice her age right um and you know these are the these are the these are the kind of examples they're the very extreme examples i would say um because it operates at different levels you know even on a local level so you had somebody like heidi heitkamp who was the senator democratic senator of south dakota or north dakota at the time of the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and herself was um, pro-pipeline, right? And uh, against the wishes of the tribe. But the tribe itself had overwhelmingly, within its voting district, voted for Heidi Heitkamp, right? Because she was a Democrat and she, you know, she was strong on like in indigenous jurisdiction, but as well as, you know, later on murder missing indigenous women. And so these are the realities that a lot of tribes confront, right? They 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 may like vote for a democratic you know senator in south or in north dakota who is you know pro oil and gas which you know leads to the destruction of their homelands and you know heidi heitkamp was actually personal friends with trump she actually rode on air force 1 flew on air force 1 with him from washington dc to north dakota where he gave a you know a rally speech prior to um uh, or during the the protests themselves um so, yeah, this is, those are the realities, you know, between Democratic and Republican, and even in this state, you know, New Mexico, where I'm calling from, it's primarily a Democratic state, but it's, it, 
its economy is now being saturated with oil and gas. And most of the oil and gas is happening. A lot of the oil and gas is happening in the Four Corners region on the you know eastern side of the Navajo Nation, where they're pumping in millions of gallons of fresh water a day. And this is a high desert environment. You know, water is a precious resource. They're pumping it in a day. You know, next to um, home sites and Navajo Nation that ha- don't even have access to running water, right? And the people who are living on that land don't even benefit from the extraction of oil from those land uh, from those lands. And if you look at the the history of resource development in this area, you can just drive on Highway 50, uh, 550 up towards Farmington from Albuquerque, and you can see the successive waves of re- of resource colonization from the oil derricks, you know, that were built, the wooden oil derricks that were built in the 1920s, to the pump. Um, the rotating pump uh, oil derricks or uh, oil pumps that were built in, I think, in the 50s. And then now you can see the modern fracking rigs that are built, you know, uh, within the last five years here and have devastated the landscape and are infringing upon sacred sites, UNESCO, you know, World Heritage sites like Chaco Canyon and the Greater Chaco Landscape. Thank you, Nick. Um I know we've uh, taken a lot of your time, but I do want to try and close this out with just a couple uh, more questions, uh, if sure. you have time. Sure. Um, the, the first, in your book, um, you know, I found it really interesting what you wrote about the threat to indigenous peoples, um, ending that threat, and your discussion of, of Ella Deloria. Uh, can you talk about indigenous and black solidarity historically and in the present? Yeah, so... I, I detail this a little bit in two chapters, um, the Red Power chapter as well as the internationalism chapter. And I think the what stuck out to my mind was that W.E.B. Du Bois, who you know helped co-found the, the NAACP, was also instrumental in the, the formation of the Society of American Indians, the first kind of pan-Indigenous or pan-American Indian um, organization in the United States which was founded in the early 1900s. And he was, you know, like they, they had a strict membership policy, he had to be American Indian to, um, to be a member, but he was the only non American Indian or non indigenous person who had um, membership. And it was because he, you know, he and uh, Charles Eastman, um, Ohiesa, the, the famous um, medical physician who the Dakota med- medical physician who was born in, you know, a Buffalo Hyde teepee uh, on the lamb, so to speak from the 1862 uh, Dakota uprising. And then, you know, the, the punitive campaigns that had af- happened afterwards, but he went on to get a medical degree, I think at Dartmouth and had befriended um, Du Bois, who is, you know, a prominent figure in, in black um, political thought and black studies in this country uh, civil rights, but as well as, you know, like anti-capitalist struggle. He later became, you know, a member of the Communist Party, I think for a year right before he died in the 1950s. But he and um, he and Eastman traveled together and actually spoke at the same, presented uh, at the same session, the at the Congress of um, the Racial Congress in London. I can't remember the year off the top of my head. It was either 1911 or 1912. But they gave presentations um, that like were very complementary of each other, right? And Du Bois wasn't just thinking about um, 
you know, when he made his famous thesis of like, you know, the problem of the color line, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, or like even the idea of the lighter, the darker nations of Europe and the rest of the world as being kind of the fundamental antagonism of modern history. He was thinking of indigenous people, you know, um, he, he didn't really write so much about it, but he had an alliance with, um, you know, with um, Zinc Kalashaw and, and Charles Eastman and, both of them wrote of, of um, Du Bois and it suggests that they had some kind of working relationship and Du Bois famous book, the soul, um, the soul of black folk um, was also, you know, ins- inspirational to Charles Eastman, um, the soul of any Indi- soul of the Indian, one of his first books that he published about um, contemporary indigenous rights and so a lot of people trace black power back to somebody like Du Bois. And I would argue that you could trace red power back to, you know, the society of American Indians and people like Sinkala Shah and Eastman himself. And so those relationships existed, you know, um, I, I, the part of my forthcoming research is more like fleshing those relationships out um, and on what they actually meant, you know, the disjunctures, but also the confluences of thought and ideas um, that they were there, they were developing at that time. But later on, you know, I don't really detail this in the book, but it's something that I'm working on in, in another project. The idea of red power came about, you know, just months after uh, Kwame Ture or, you know, also known as Stokely Carmichael, coined the term black power. Um, Mel Tom uh, and Clyde Warrior, two people who were foundational in creating the National Indi- uh, National Indian Youth Council in 1961, I believe it was, coined the term red power. And it wasn't seen as a competing kind of um, political framework of, of black power, but it was actually seen as complementary and that um, indigenous and black people had encountered the United States as groups of people versus, uh, as individuals, right. Indigenous people as nations, some would argue, you know, there's a, there's black nationalism or black peoplehood or African peoplehood, you know, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Turi himself was a pan-Africanist and, uh, Vine Deloria would later write about his kind of admiration for somebody like Kwame Ture as being, you know, uh, a, a nationalist. Um, and it's not like race, race nationalism, I think people um, kind of mistake that as like a race nationalism, but it was it was based on a, a framework of peoplehood, right? Of shared ancestry, shared um, language, uh, but also more importantly, the kind of shared history of oppression um, with the U.S. government. And so there was a lot of cross pollination between the Black Power movement and the Red Power movement. If you read somebody's autobiography, like Asada Shakur, she you know she was at Alcatraz in 1969. And was very influenced by the um, the Indians of all nations uh, and their takeover of the Alcatraz Island and, tr- and attempting to create, you know, a university and like for indigenous people. Right. And she, you know, she asked like, well, what what can I do? What can I do as an African person uh, to to help the indigenous cause? And they said, well, go back to Harlem and liberate Harlem. You know, <laughs> it was kind of a joke, but she took it seriously, you know, and um and also like Angela Davis, you know, she attempted to go to uh, Wounded Knee uh, during the, the occupation in 1973. But she herself, you know, if you read her work, she, you know, she was very influenced a lot by the, the Red Power movement of that time period. Dennis Banks and the Belcourt brothers, Vernon and Clyde, 
you know, when they were in jail and prison, they were reading about the Black Panther Party and the Black Power Movement and were very much influenced by it and wanted to create their own organization. You know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a clone because it developed, you know, from the conditions of, you know, the struggles of, of everyday Native American people, like specifically off reservation, but it had those, those influences. And you can see that the same kind of, the same kind of collaboration and cross-pollination with like the immense amount of support that groups like Black Lives Matter provided for the Standing Rock Uprising in 2016. Um, I remember leaving for Chicago to, to do research at the Newberry Library for a month at a fellowship. And I, as soon as I got off the plane, I went to the American Indian Center in Chicago. And the groups that were there were the American Indian Center community, as well as Black Lives Matter. And they were organizing solidarity, even sent delegations out to Standing Rock. Uh, and then with the George Floyd protests, um, there was the same kind of um, solidarity you, you had seen. You know, it was um, the American Indian Movement, uh, also various uh, indigenous organizations in the city uh, were very supportive and integral to the uprising and the anti-police violence work in the city. So the, those connections run very deep. And I would say run deeper than just those histories that I, I would say, you know, and that's part of a a book project that I'm working on um, sometime in the future. I don't know when it's going to be completed, but <laughs> tracing it, the, the origins of this country back to African and uh, American Indian rebellions. Um, you know, the first, the first so-called maroon colonies, you know, the first settlement, the European settlement, I think it was in 1920 or 1524, 1523 was overthrown. It was a Spanish, you know, uh, attempt to colonize uh, what is now uh, South Carolina uh, they brought with them African um, enslaved African people as well as enslaved uh, Caribbean indigenous people to create a plantation in you know and make a head make a, a foothold or a beachhead in South Carolina and the African people and the the, the indigenous uh, people from the Caribbean found a way to communicate with each other and then they also found a way to communicate with the Guales, the people the indigenous people of the area and they coordinated a a, a revolt and evicted the Spanish from you know, the continent. And it was non African people who were the first permanent residents in what became, later became the United States, you know, uh, and they were taken in by the tribes and they developed real kinships, you know, with, with those tribes. And I think that's a much more productive story. Um, in, in a much earlier history, you know, of, of resistance and black and indigenous resistance specifically that we need to celebrate and we need to foreground um, before we can, you know, talk about birth of the United States and all those other things. Thanks, Nick. And that, that, that offers a, a good segue to, to my final question here. And it's about your, your last chapter uh, titled liberation. Um, and to share a, a brief excerpt with our listeners, you wrote at the, you know, at the very end of your book, whereas past revolutionary struggles to strive for the emancipation of labor from capital we are challenged not just to imagine, but to demand the emancipation of earth from capital. For the earth to live, capitalism must die. Um, that's a, a big task. And I, I wonder if you can offer um, maybe our listeners any any optimism and and suggestions for how to contribute to um, to that project. Yeah, that's that's a some of the work that I'm I'm doing now. It's kind of been, you know waylaid by the coronavirus and the inability to travel uh, for very good reasons. I'm not mm -hmm. complaining, <laughs> um, but I've been doing work on like 
this idea of indigenous land defense and caretaking economies, because it's something that tends to fall outside of the formal kind of realm of, you know, workers versus capital, right? And it it's not something that it's not work that capital uh, or capitalism um, recognizes as as essential work because therefore it's not paid, right? Indigenous land defenders are not paid to defend their land, nor are water protectors. But nonetheless, it's vital, right, to the, for the biological and social reproduction of everyone on this planet. We all need clean water, clean air, right, and healthy land to live on, right? I don't. That's it's an essential requirement. Just as just as um, people need, you know, care care work for elderly people, care work for children, you know, care work for the the people who are sick, and that's often devalued and gendered labor, and it's not recognized. And so when I said you know, emancipate the earth from capital, you know, it's not, it is the realm of like, you know, workers versus capital, um, those who are in the wage economy, but it's also includes a much more expansive vision, um, that black feminists, um, you know, Marxists and leftist feminists, as well as indigenous people have theorized that work isn't something that's just defined in relation to capital. You know, it is oftentimes defined that way, but when we say emancipate the earth from capital, we mean, um, talking about indigenous land defense in places like the Amazon or even in a city like Albuquerque, right? The protection of the waterways, the protection of um, the plant and, you know, traditional food systems and food sovereignty in the city is incredibly important. It's something that a lot of people don't really see as part of that broader work, but it is, it is, you know, it is happening. Um, the production of bioregions, such as the Missouri River Basin, the production of, you know, deserts, Deserts are often seen as lacking life, but then, but in fact, are you know integral to the the you know the the biosphere of of this country, but also the world. Um, you know, you have a lot of wasting that happens in deserts. You have a lot of nuclear testing, um, the dumping of things in, in deserts, and you know, I, I just say this because my friend, um, she's a Paiute anthropologist, Kristen Simmons does a lot of work on this. And that's part of the myth of, you know, deserts is that they're, they're not populated with anybody and they're like, you know, they're not full of life, but they are, you know, indigenous people have been living that way with those things. And so when we talk about emancipating the earth from capital, we mean all forms of life. Um, and this is something that I think is incredibly important um, and has been integral to like an in, specifically an indigenous framework. Um, and I turned to somebody like, you know, um, Lee Miracle, who, you know, talked about the end of the plundering of earth for profit. And, you know, it's been very prominent and specifically in indigenous feminism to understand like what you do to the earth, you also do to your bodies, um, or you do to the body of indigenous people or indigenous people's, you know, health. And that doesn't really fall within a lot of the frameworks, the kind of mainstream frameworks of how we understand into capitalism or alternatives to capitalism. Um, but you can look at documents like the 2010, you know, Cochabamba Accords or the People's Accords that were passed in Bolivia, where they talked about the rights of nature. And I think that's something that um, we need to really reflect on in this moment. You know, it was written over uh, almost a decade, well, in, actually a decade ago. And it began this movement of, you know, giving, granting rights of nature and, and protecting nature and understanding ecocide as a form of genocide, you know, in, in some ways. And this can't, this didn't come from like the big think tanks of the North. This didn't come from, you know, the, 
the kind of um, more prominent progressive movements, social movements in the north. It came from campesinos. It came from indigenous people. It came from you know the humble people of the earth who really advanced what we we know as like eco socialism or eco feminism or you know even indigenous uh, um, you know frameworks of uh, environmentalism to the foreground um, that the rest of the world is now following. You know um, you have the rights of nature movement you know happening in places in the United States or in 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 uh, New Zealand Aotearoa and those origins actually came from Bolivia and it came from these, you know, from indigenous people. And so I think we need to, you know, not be so arrogant in the first world and actually listen to uh, other movements that are, that are far more advanced in, in terms of how they're understanding, you know, justice and and specifically climate justice and climate decolonization. Um, Because, you know, right now it's, you know, like it, that framework that I said, you know, for, 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 um, the earth to live capitalism must die. This can't kind of comes from like some, you know, Marxist schools of thought. The other one is, you know, they, they're saying, well, socialism or barbarism, you know, that's the alternative that we're facing right now with the rise of authoritarianism. Well, we say, uh, not just me, I'm, you know, I'm not the one that coined this phrase, but a lot of indigenous people say in the indigenous movement, since we're facing the six mass extinction event, and since, you know, we, we have less than, you know, a decade to tra- change course, drastically change course in this moment in time, you know, it's decolonization or extinction. That's the reality that we're facing. And I think indigenous knowledges are at the forefront of foregrounding that, right. And it gets into the ideas of, of genocide. It gets into the ideas, how culture, indigenous culture plays a prominent role, especially since, you know, 80% of the world's biodiversity is in land controlled by or managed by or taken care of by indigenous people. And we have to recognize that, you know, some of this stuff, it's not easy. It's not easy work. You know, why is it easier to imagine the end of, um, you know, fossil fuel economy, but not settler colonialism, you know, that's a problem. Um, but indigenous people have developed, you know, the most kind of robust frameworks of, of environmentalism and climate justice that we need to pay attention to. And yeah, I encourage everyone to go out and read, you know, the Just Transition Principles by Indigenous Environmental Network. My organization, the Red Nation, came out with a three-part uh, policy program called the Red Deal. Um, there's also the Cochabamba Accords. We drew a lot of inspiration from that. Um, so those, those are the documents that indigenous people have been working on uh, for generations, not just, you know, it's not a recent thing. So I encourage everyone to go out and teach them, to read them, think on them, debate them, uh, and get involved. Great. Thank you, Nick. Uh, our listeners can also listen to uh, the Red Nation podcast uh, available on iTunes. Um, you talked a little bit about your future work. Uh, obviously, it seems like we could talk for <laughs> talk all day uh, if, had, if we had the opportunity. So uh, I look forward to the you know the prospect of having you back on. Uh, thank you so much for all of your time today, and um, yeah, we'll have to stay in touch. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. All right, thanks, Nick. Have a good day. <laughs>